0: You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Daniel Howard's interview with the screenwriter for the holdovers, David Hemmingson.
1: Sir, I don't understand. That's glaringly apparent. I can't fail this class. Oh, don't sell yourself short, Mr. Coates. I truly believe that you can.
2: Every year at Barton Academy, students, faculty, and staff depart the campus for a two-week winter break. But there are always an unfortunate few who have nowhere to go for the holidays. They're known as the Holdovers.
0: Mr. Hanum, Hello, Mary. I heard you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that?
1: You know, he used to be a student, right? Yeah, that's why he knows how to inflict maximum pain on us. <sighs> I thought all the Nazis were hiding in Argentina. Stifle it, Tully. You just earned yourself a detention, sir. Being he here with you is already one big detention. Son of a bitch, that's another detention. Do you think I want to be babysitting you? No, I was praying your mother would pick up the phone or your father would arrive in a helicopter or a flying saucer. My father's to take you- dead.
0: Well, David, I, I can't begin to tell you how much I love The Holdover's easily one of my favorites of the year just such an incredible movie and so I'm thrilled to talk with you today so thank you for the time.
2: No thank you I'm, I'm ecstatic that you dug it I'm really 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 happy that you liked it that means a tremendous amount to me thank you. Absolutely
0: well so you created and and written on, on numerous incredible shows over the years but if I'm not mistaken this is your first produced feature is that right? Yep totally right. So how, how did you come to this project?
2: I um, had been in uh, kind of overall deals for many years and when i got out of an overall deal over at ABC, i i sort of had this burst of of um creativity and then i sort of had things that i wanted to write about that i hadn't written about you know specifically deeply personal things and i ended up writing a, a pilot called stonehaven which was sort of the story of me and kind of like my family my mom was a nurse my dad was a merchant seaman and a, and a, and a teacher and the story of sort of how i how i was sort of Swept up and gathered up by my uncle, who was this incredible World War II veteran and kind of guided through the rocky points of my life and ended up at the school where my father taught. So it was a it was a pilot that sort of took place largely at a a preparatory school in Connecticut where I went for six years, loosely fictionalized, like 90 percent autobiographical. And one of the reasons I've had the same agent for 27 years is because he is notorious for having the best taste and the worst bedside manner uh, he, he was sort of read this and said, I love this. It's so specific. I'm not sure what to do with it. And so I said, okay, well, I had to write it because it was, what was in my heart. And I, I wanted to just, you know, do that one from the heart. And so, you know, miracle worker that he is, I, I, he manages to get it to Niels Mueller, who's a client of his, who gets it to Alexander Payne. So at the time I was running a show called Whiskey Cavalier, uh, in Prague and I was flying back and forth and I was just dog tired to the point of delirium. And I was driving home, from like a 14-hour flight and the phone rang and it was this guy who said David Hemmings Alexander Payne and I didn't know about this whole arrangement that Matt had gone through and I thought I had a friend who used to who likes to call me up and pretend to be various world-renowned creative luminaries such as like Francis Ford Coppola and say David Hemmings Francis Ford Coppola and inevitably like the first two times I kind of breathlessly said oh, hello like that and then he called me an idiot and uh, asked me if I want to have a beer so that was sort of a game we played so I figured this is another round of that so I was gonna I was about to tell uh this person the caller to go f himself when I noticed the when I noticed the Omaha area code and and I realized it probably really was or there was a chance it was Alexander Payne who you know honestly is a hero of mine a cinematic hero of mine I was completely familiar with everything he'd ever done I loved his work forever I thought he was a genius and you know so I was like oh wow okay you know and he said listen I read this pilot uh, I love this pilot. I was like, great. So all of a sudden, like my dream, a dream is born in my heart. This is going to happen. He says, but I want to make your pilot. I'm like, ah, dream dies. But he said, what I want to do is I want to make a film set in the same arena, in the same world of a, of a preparatory school, ideally a boarding school. And the threshold question was sort of like 1958 or 1970. And, uh, you know, and this is, by the way, we're talking like 45 seconds into the conversation, right? So like in a minute of the conversation. So all of a sudden, we're talking about when conceivably would this film be set. So I kind of said 1970. I prefer 1970 because I'd never seen a prep school movie set in 1970. Um, I felt like 1970 had more in common politically and culturally with with 2018, which is when the phone call occurred, sat back in 2018. And then I sort of said, oh, and I think Peter Weir kind of owns 1958. And There was a long pause. And I thought to myself, if I just burn this relationship down, like the second time in two minutes, have I almost made a terrible mistake, but it was emblematic of how generous and smart and decent and kind of collaborative Alexander is. He's like, no, you're right. No, dead poets can't do it. I was like, yeah, he said, I said, but I'd love to do it in 1970. And so he had a log line for me, uh, which is pretty much kind of odiferous, accurately challenged professor is as punishment assigned to stay stick around with these holdovers one of whom uh, his mother has gone off to do this um, honeymoon thing. So that's all I had. He said, that's, that's the premise. Uh, and I said, okay, I can work with that. Uh, and then we were off to the races and, you know, I, I will say there were times, you know, like with any film, as I've discovered uh, having developed films, um, things look like they're heading in one direction and they, they take a sharp left term and it looks like, Oh, it's not going to happen. Then it takes a sharp right term. It's going to happen again. This one had a few of those, but, you know, on balance, it went pretty quickly. And, and the experience was phenomenal. You know, I would send him chunks, I sent him like an act at a time, and he would kind of hit me back. And like I guess it very Midwestern, very gracious, you know, sort of like, I really love this, that I perhaps you could just change this thing or wrench on this little part. So, you know, we had a very sort of collegial relationship from the get go. And we got to spend time with each other and got to know each other. uh, It became more so like, you know, we both love to cook. So, i go over to his place and he'd spatchcock a chicken and we'd talk or, you know, he'd come over to my place and, you know, i cook up something and he'd crash out for the night and we'd, you know, talk and he'd give me notes. And it's been a, it's been kind of a dream come true. I mean, honestly, I mean, it's 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 I get to work with my one of my heroes, which is extraordinary, you know. Amazing.
0: And now that you know him well, if you had told him to F off when you first answered the phone, what do you think his reaction would have been?
2: <laughs> he would have laughed, I think. Do you and think then... it would have ended? It would have been game no, over. I think it that would have been an awkward Pause. And then then it would have been a reset because he's very Midwestern. You know, the thing we have remember working on this Western together right now and, and the thing we I've learned about Midwesterners, especially Nebraskans, is because people encountered each other on the prairie so rarely. This is a cultural thing, but dating back to the 1860s, like Nebraskans are very polite to each other. So you have a fair amount of latitude in terms of the relationship because people sort of want to get to know you want to get to know, you. You know they're they're very much um very very plain collegial and it takes a lot to push them off axis i think it probably would have laughed it off and we would have continued so i i mean uh, he's actually like i said a really a g- generous and decent guy and uh is not mercurial in the least which is nice that's great
0: well let's dive into the movie so sure. Payne gave you the two gentlemen who lead this movie, you know the mm-hmm. per, the the professor and the kid who's holding over. But I understand that Mary was was your addition to and making it from a two hander to a to a kind of a trio. Yeah, uh, yeah. Why yeah. did why did you know that the movie needed her?
2: Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was just writing about this today. You know, a lot of this movie, the characters are grounded in the people who raised me, the people in my life. You know, and I felt like. First, the first thing I wanted to do is like, you know, there's some question because, you know, it, w- it wasn't like he said, get rid of those other kids. You know, um, there was a possibility that those other kids were going to stick around. But I sort of looked at it. and I went, you know, what? I'm increasingly less interested in the interpersonal dynamics of these boys, which I know, like the back of my hand, that kind of Lord of the Flies prep school thing. Like, you know, you could do it. You could tease out their backstories, which I which we do in the movie a little bit. But I wanted to get it down to like the essential relationships. And I felt like this sort of father-son, teacher-student thing that was going to happen between Paul, that I could feel was going to happen between Paul and Angus was what I really wanted to write about. But then I thought to myself, as a practical matter, first of all, if they're holding over, there would be somebody there, probably somebody to cook for them. So I was like, okay, why don't we do that? And I started thinking about the two two basic ideas. One was, you know, emotionally, and in terms of a story I wanted to tell, was my mom, who was such an extraordinary woman. She was a registered nurse. And when my folks... Split up. She would get up at quarter four in the morning and go work the daybreak shift, the dawn patrol at the ICU at at uh, Montsinna and Hartford, so that she could be back in time to make me, you know, dinner when I got home from school. And just I never saw her sleep. I I just she was the hardest working, most loving, dedicated mother you know I could begin to imagine. And I thought to myself, you know, what if? And then I would I look at the other women who worked with her, the LPNs and the RNs and the support staff and the people who worked at the school, and I thought to myself. You know, I know these women are similarly situated. A lot of them are single moms. And I thought to myself, you know, this woman might be a single mom, but why is she a single mom? And I thought to myself, what is the worst thing that could have happened to my mother who I, you know, cherished, you know, completely? And that would be, you know, in her life would be to lose me. And like, what would it mean for someone to lose their sort of raison d'etre, you know, like that? And I kind of wanted to explore that because it was a very different experience than the one that I was going to portray with Paul and Angus. I want I knew that each of these characters was going to be broken in a different way because I wanted to examine that sort of that kind of pain and isolation with the three of them and I wanted to see, you know, how how they would change each other, how they would impact each other, how they would transform each other. And so I just thought about my mom and what would have happened and, you know, and then I I sort of did a lot of research into what happened with young black men in in the Vietnam War and you know, they were drafted i think 11 of the population 16 percent of the draftees you know 23 of the frontline battlefield casualties were young black men and i thought to myself it's quite plausible that she would have lost her son this way and it's also quite plausible that if he didn't get a deferment those other kids did so what's it like for her to sit there you know so i did a really deep dive um on mary and um you know obviously fell in love with her too and um was blown away by the you know choices and by her portrayal i mean it just it brings me to tears every time and i've seen the movie 30 times and you know, she's just remarkable she's remarkable i hope, hope that was responsive
0: absolutely absolutely what-
1: history is complicated the story of human progress is long messy and riddled with controversies big and small on conflicted
0: balance in in terms of paul especially but also his relationship with angus he's he's especially unlikable in the beginning of oh, the yeah. film yeah, you know yeah, he's yeah. very odorous yeah. like you said but he's of course able to win us over throughout the course of the film but how do you how do you strike that balance especially towards the beginning to make him unlikable but not lose the audience or have us just tune out and don't want this guy to succeed
2: i think it all comes out of integrity you know I feel like there's that early scene when he talks about, you know, we cannot sacrifice our integrity on the altar of their entitlement. I feel like he takes this seriously. He is kind of a prick to these kids, but by the same token, he's doing it in the service of something he genuinely believes in. And I think what he believes in is understandable. So that makes him that lets us stipulate to the fact that okay, this guy probably has some some anchor, some sort of hard moral center. Let's see what he does with it. I think people, if you have integrity, people will cut you some slack, even if you're kind of unlikable. And I think that integrity shines through in his performance. And I try to to install it in the writing. And then gradually, and this is a function of of a kind of a methodology that I, I discovered while I was writing the screenplay, you know, gradually you push on that integrity and you find out that nobody's perfect, but you also find there's hidden nobility as well as hidden vulnerability. And, you know, my goal was to continually put them in situations where... They had to make hard choices vis a vis each other. One would, you know, do something for the other, and then, you know, you get a little more backstory that way because the more you put in a crisis with people, the more you learn about them. You know, people say, you know, you are what you do. Well, you're you are what you do in crisis, especially, right? So to see the way he responded to um, when Angus hurts his arm, or to see the way he responds, Angus responds when you know uh, he pushes back on 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 buying him a Miller High Life. Like, I I knew that I could get there and I could get there relatively quickly once I got them alone, you know? So yeah, I, I I wrote it so that he had enough integrity. So we didn't cash. We didn't just cash out on him. We didn't check out on him early on. And then I wanted to create enough comic complications to, to have him reveal himself so that we gained kind of an an increasing kind of emotional attachment to him over the course of the film.
0: Yeah. And, and, I wanted to ask you about the balance between the comedy and drama. Um, it's a masterclass of tone in the way that it's hilarious and also deeply meaningful and moving uh, in, in the same hand. How do you balance those things? Genuine hilarity, genuine
2: emotion. You know, I think that it's it's really it comes down to humanity and Alex. I'd, honestly being an Alexander Payne fan, I watched a lot of his movies and you like Descendants has a great is a great example of that. I mean, Sideways is a great example. Nebraska is a great example of that. You know, this idea of reveal enough of the character and and move the story along in such a way that you're engaged and have it be funny because, you know, comedy is human frailty, right? Comedy is basically the distance between what I think of myself and what the world thinks of me like that distance right there is where the comedy lives. Right. So I'm always trying to put people in in situations where the world is disagreeing with their assessment. So they're going to be angry or frightened or flattered or something. And it's going to kind of kind of come out. I find that if you get comedy, oftentimes the way to get the drama is to sort of let the comedy rest, you know Um, let, let the moment rest. Miyazaki has this concept called ma that he does deals with a lot of his, his movies where there's in these are animated movies but there's silence you know after incidents there's silence in it and if you let it rest the audience sort of organically resets emotionally and then you can start to do things that are a little more serious and a little more earnest and then if you just throw a little more comedy in there later on and some more incident then you know people's endorphins kind of come up and they enjoy it some more but then as they relax after that you can get even more backstory so you're kind of drawing you're trying to draw the audience through the narrative in such a way that they're constantly getting you know a laugh but then also that little kind of space that little bit of quiet where humanity can creep in and reality can creep in so i just really i tried hard to to develop a methodology whereby i was constantly creating you know interesting incidents that would create friction between the characters and this that friction would you know perhaps throw off a, a bit of a disagreement but that would be funny but in the in the aftermath of that disagreement and in, in in what would take the place of an apology people sort of start revealing themselves to each other mm that's amazing uh, i mean and it worked like a charm thank you no i i, I was and, and i hit upon it's like i realized that like halfway through the second act like the second draft of the second act i'm like oh oh this is what i have to do i have to constantly you know go deeper but go deeper in the context of of also giving people something to laugh at and enjoy so they relax and are available you know emotionally available to to have the to have the other revelation Thanks, well, <laughs> one thing
0: that is spectacular about the holdovers is how it feels it's not just set in the 70s but it almost feels plucked out of the 70s as if it's a 70s movie we just discovered. and it's it's really evident in the visuals, the visual style, the logos, the beginning, and the editing style. But how did that sensibility of feeling not just set in the 70s, but as if it's from the 70s, how did that impact your approach to the script?
2: Oh, hugely, man, because, I, you know, Alexander's is is such a walking encyclopedia of cinematic knowledge, you know, and he's long loved Hal Ashby. And actually, ironically or fortuitously, right when he started mentioning this to me, he goes, you know, I love Hal Ashby. There's a documentary about Hal Ashby that's out now. And I went to the New Art Theater, which is a great theater on like um, Santa Monica and Sautel here in L.A., and saw the Ashby documentary uh, that he was in. And it talked about how Ashby made five of the greatest films in the latter half of the 20th century from 1970 to 1980. So, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a nerd. I'm kind of not kind of a nerd. I'm a major nerd. But I, I sort of like, you know, I don't mind doing the work. I don't mind doing the homework. And luckily, next to New the Art New Cinema is a place called Cinephile Video, which has, it's one of the last video stars in LA. It's got 30,000 titles that you can't find anywhere else. They don't stream, it, plus a giant director section. So these two guys, JP and Greg, work there. And I went over and I said, look, I need to know as much about Ashby as I can. And so they're like, here's the Ashby section. So I started watching everything, you know, The Landlord, Bond for Glory, Coming Home, Harold and Maude, Last Detail, you know, being there. And then, okay, well, that turned me on to what? What's next to Ashby? Altman's right there, right? So then start consuming all the Altman, those 70s movies, that's 70 tone. But over here's Bob Rafelson, so five easy pieces, right? So I start, you know, absorbing all this stuff and then calling AP and kind of going, Hey, you know, I'm really feeling like this rhythm is interesting. And, you know, have you ever looked at this movie or, you know, Cuckoo's Nest is a good example. Like, you know, obviously me, there's Foreman, but, you know, and then he would, you know, he would be able to un- unload with like 75 examples of specific things in that oeuvre, like, and it just blew my mind. So I kind of saturated myself in those seventies movies and then went to like, you know, 400 blows by, uh, by Truffaut. And then, um, a band apart by Godard. Those are two French movies that really impacted me, but, you know, I just, took a couple of years and went to film school on AP's back I just went into to cinephile I was like I'm gonna learn as much as I can about this era uh and I'll, I'll tell you something it was it was a revelation I I feel so grateful for so many things relating to this picture but getting to sort of have a private kind of Almost like, you know, like our Oxford or Cambridge, like a tutor, like these two guys, these two guys, these awesome counter guys, sort of like led me through cinema history. And they're just the two dudes are like Tarantino that you know, when Tarantino worked in his video stores, like two guys who know everything. And they like, hey man, absolutely, let me hook you up. And so that's how we got it. I mean, I he knew a, a ton about the 70s. I put myself, you know, into into grad school with JP and Greg. And uh I I, you know, just figure out as much as I could that way. That's amazing.
0: I wish I could talk to you more. Um, it's just about my time. Uh, one more question before I let you go. You mentioned that you and Alexander are working on a Western right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, What can you What can you share with me about that?
2: I can't go into detail about it because we're it's still in the nascent stages. The way we work is typically we talk about the story and bat it back and forth until we both feel like it's you know it's where it needs to be. But it is set in Nebraska. I can say that. Nebraska. Okay. Nebraska in 1886. 1886.
0: Okay. Well, we'll we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. Very excited for that. Excellent, man. David, thank you so much again, thank and congrats so on
2: the movie. Can't
0: wait for Thanks, more baby. people to
2: discover it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much.
0: Hey everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Daniel a interview with the screenwriter for The Holdovers, David Hennessy, here on the next Best Picture podcast. The Holdovers is currently playing in limited release and will expand to more theaters on Focus features and is up for your consideration for this year's Academy Awards in all eligible categories. You have been listening to The Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon? For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content plus. Thank you all so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time.